Well, Oregon football had a big recruiting weekend, and it wasn't even the best thing that happened to the Ducks on Saturday and Sunday. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you haven't already, like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show, which has got all sorts of stuff coming your way today. Like, mm, I, don't, I don't know why this, this is like the oversign that I'm doing for those of you listening on podcasts, but man. I'm stacked, or <laughs> stacked, stoked uh, to get into it all. The biggest thing that happened over the weekend is Oregon softball is going to a super regional big time. How about the Ducks? They were not supposed to come out of there. Everybody liked Arkansas. Oregon said, oh, that's okay. We're going to run rule them with a walk-off grand slam. That was pretty darn awesome. I also went to a wedding over the weekend of a former Oregon women's basketball player, and there were other former Oregon women's basketball players or Oregon athletes there. Kelly Graves was there, the women's basketball coach, and we all shouted together. So that was all just like W's across the board. And then the recruiting news started to come in, and Michael Van Buren committed and Zadavian Sims committed. So let's talk about those two guys. So four-star quarterback Michael Van Buren chose the Ducks over Penn State and Maryland. We talked about him with Brian Smith on the show last week. Looked like Oregon was in a good position. They have now gotten a verbal commitment from the 2024 four-star, who is the number 11 quarterback in the 2023 cycle. He really is kind of a late bloomer of, of sorts. Not, not entirely, but he popped last year in his junior season when he played De La Salle High School, and that is a national high school football powerhouse. And he went for 235 yards and four touchdowns. He's 5'11 and a half, 185 pounds. He's not the biggest guy out there, but he's got a really fluid motion. He's really, really, I wouldn't say like super, super mobile, but like he is a really good athlete. I'd say above average for uh, a guy at the quarterback position. And he, he had an interesting quote that I saw on uh, an interview he gave to, to Bleacher Report about why he chose Oregon. He said, you know, the Ducks have been on their, on his radar since Kenny Dillingham was there, and then Will Stein took over. And just a little bit of insight, here's to what we should expect from our new offensive coordinator, which we've discussed before. He said, quote, it's a great scheme with Kenny Dillingham, yada, yada, yada. Basically the same stuff with Will Stein being there. So there will be a little, you know, a variation to the Will Stein offense as long as he's Oregon's offensive coordinator. But – we should see a lot of the same concepts and plays that we uh, saw a season ago, which is good. But I like Van Buren a lot. Uh, I think there's a lot to like about him. He is definitely not a guy who is expected, I think, to come in and start right away. At least that's not the scouting report, but he's got a good arm. I like his poise in the pocket. I, I think a lot of times you can see kids at the high school level, and it's about trust with your offensive line at some level too. But I like seeing kids who can stand in there and like Austin Novosad in the spring game, not look like they're uncomfortable in, in that particular space. And they're able to go through their progressions, dissect the defense and deliver the ball where, where they need to, but he's got good mobility. I, I mean, he's got a couple of uh, highlights on huddle where he is uh, juking guys out of their shoes. He's definitely mobile, but not a huge, huge guy out there, but we've seen small quarterbacks succeed uh, before in the past, but 
According to Andrew Ivins of 24-7 Sports, who wrote up the scouting report on him, he said that his decision-making and field rating, or field reading, that is, has to improve to reach his full potential. So he's not a guy that's expected to come in the way a Dante Moore was, for instance, where he could compete for a starting spot in his first or second season uh, necessarily. He may be able to do it in, in his second season, but... He now makes the second quarterback commitment Oregon's got in the 2024 cycle, along with three-star Luke Moga. And he wasn't the only guy who committed over the weekend because Zadavian Sims, a four-star defensive lineman, also announced that he is going to be an Oregon Duck. Oregon got him out of the state of Oklahoma, uh, a takeaway I'll get to in just a moment. He played at Denison, Texas the prior season. Then he went to Oklahoma, and we ended up pulling him right out of Brent Venable's backyard. And he's coming over to Oregon, chose the Ducks. He had that crazy list. If you uh, everydayers remember listening to Brian Smith's and I talk about that on last week's show. But he chose Oregon over Michigan State, TCU, Vanderbilt, and Arkansas. Four conferences, five different states. I don't know. But he ends up choosing the Ducks. He is a big dude. I mean a, I mean a big, big, big dude. Six foot three, he's already 275 pounds. And the amazing thing is the uh, the scouting report that 24-7's got on him says that he has space on his frame to add more mass, which, I mean, okay, fantastic, I suppose. And they talk about his scheme versatility, that he's a scheme versatile prospect and the the sort of guy who can play inside, who can play outside and has kind of a Brandon Dorless quality about him. And I think there are some defensive linemen like Ashton Porter, for instance, in this 2023 cycle as well with all the defensive linemen, Dan Lanning, Tosh Lupoy and Tony Tuioti have gotten to a, a commit who can play a little bit of both like Brandon Dorless can play inside and outside. Jordan Birch, I think, is big enough to line up on the inside if you wanted to, right? Those DeForest Buckner types who, you know, line up at the defensive end, line up at defensive tackle, and are really, really good at, at both. Might be better at one than the other, but scheme versatility is, is something that is uh, noteworthy about him. And, that you know, th- this sort of kid, you know, coming from the middle of the country all the way out to Oregon on the defensive line, this is just a Tony, Tony Tuioti and Tosh Lupoi special. Like these guys have been recruiting defensive linemen at a really, really high rate when you're talking about getting blue chip prospects over the last couple of seasons. And I, I don't think they're even close to being done in, in the 2024 class at this position because they don't even have, I, I think, what will end up being their highest rated recruit yet, right? Whether that's an offensive tackle, whether that's a defensive lineman, whether that's, you know, somebody else who could emerge. But I think Oregon's best work recruiting wise for the 2024 cycle in the trenches is yet to come and i think this is a really really nice pickup so it leaves oregon in uh, the next recruiting cycle with the number six class in the country they've got 10 four stars and three three stars now they're in a great spot I, i i love where they're at They've got some really intriguing prospects. They've got two quarterbacks in there, so they, they should be out of the quarterback sweep st- sweepstakes. I think two is uh, – I think we can all agree that's probably the limit there just logistically. That's the only way you can make that uh, work, which they certainly can. You can add two quarterbacks. It's happened before. It will happen again, and Oregon has done it right now. But I, while I, I, I love where their recruiting is at, 
I think that their class, when you're talking about national ranking, can still go higher. I also think it could go lower, which which I will explain after I explain how great built bars are. Because I was golfing the other day, and I was out there with a couple buddies, and we had a little bit of cash on the line. And in the middle of the round, all of a sudden, I got hungry, and we weren't close to the turn. And I hadn't thought about that sort of stuff because it was early in the morning and the timing with food can be weird, but I had a built bar in my bag. So guess what? I ate that. I enjoyed the protein, enjoyed the taste and boom, took my friend's money. Absolutely cleaned their clocks because that's how we roll. But built bars roll by being healthy and tasting amazing. They're covered in 100% real chocolate with a bunch of great flavors like churro, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, cookies and cream. I don't know how Built does it, but they've only got 130 calories. They've got four grams of sugar, a whopping 17 grams of protein, and you can get your next order in a variety of ways. You can go to your local Walmart, go to the pharmacy section, get a four-bar box of coconut puff or double chocolate or cookies and cream. You can go to Sam's Club, get a 13-bar box with hip flavors, brownie batter puff, and churro puff, or you can get specialty flavors at Built.com. Walmart, Built.com, Sam's Club, get your next order of Built Bars, and when you do, just make sure that you thank me later, as usual. March Madness is right around the corner. If you want to win your office pool, you need to stay caught up with all the college basketball action with the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Every Monday, Andy Patton and Isaac Shade recap the biggest stories in college basketball, keep you up to date on the NCAA tournament bubble, and get you ready for the upcoming week of games. From the Big East to the Mountain West and everywhere in between, Andy and Isaac have college hoops covered on the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. No, there was not as much water in that glass as I originally thought when I went to take a sip, for those of you watching on YouTube. But the reason I feel as I do about Oregon's 2024 class, which is off to a fantastic start, like you got you have 10 blue chip prospects, you're going after a bunch of other ones, and I think they're in a really, really great spot, it seems, for a number of five-star recruits. The reason I think it can go higher or lower is because we're still early in the cycle. So Oregon is recruiting at a good level. Yes, absolutely. They're recruiting at the sort of level that you want to see Dan Lanning and Tosh Lupoi and everybody bringing in players, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, to help Oregon get back to a conference championship level. Yes, absolutely. But with so much time left in the cycle, there are so many big names out there. So Oregon currently sits sixth in the 24-7 composite rankings compared to everybody else in the country. But you have some classes for for other programs. Like I think Florida is pretty low in this in, in this area, for instance. Not that Oregon can't out recruit Florida, but you know they've got more talent in in their backyard. Of course, it's at the point in the cycle where if you have volume, I think your rankings are getting rewarded, and so Oregon has to keep their foot on the gas pedal from a recruiting standpoint if they're going to stay in the top ten or get into uh, the top five and, and go for, you know, the best class in program history is what that would end up being, right? Best ever 2021, number six in uh, the country. And, you know, you can get into the, the, the nitty gritty details about the, uh, um, about the overall composite rankings and how much you got the, and all that sort of stuff and eclipsing 300 and such. But they've never been higher than six. That's where they currently sit. But with the number of big name players out there, other schools, if they land commitments, 
could surpass Oregon or Oregon could solidify their position or move up even higher if they're able to get some of these guys, right? Brandon Baker, Elijah Rushing, like just keep going down the list. Uh, Williams, Nerwerny, yeah, the the guy we talked about last week whose name is hard to pronounce. His first name is Williams, Uh, Dylan Williams, right? Another five-star linebacker that Oregon is, uh, is going after there. So, I think it could go higher. I think it could go lower with so many big names on the board, but I like where they are at. And I like what these guys are are, are bringing to the, the, the roster, certainly, but also what they are bringing to the, the recruiting for Oregon and kind of the mo- momentum that they have on, uh, on that front. So um, I think that's all great news. Curious as to your guys' thoughts, as always, and girls' thoughts. I know there's some female listeners out there, uh, not as many, but I know that you are out there, and I appreciate each and every one of you. So, YouTube comments, drop your thoughts. Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at locked on ducks. You know, my DMs and mentions are wide open. So, this question comes in from Robin. So, I just wanted you to know I watch your show every day. My guys in every day are out there. I just can't watch it until five o'clock in the evening. Makes no difference to me, my friend. If you're consuming the show, I appreciate it regardless. Anyway, I think we will have two 1,000-yard running backs this year and another around three to 400 yards and like seven touchdowns. Anyway, what do you think? So, have to shout out Mark and Aaron, who, as I alluded to when I was uh, recording the show and talked about the possibility of having 2,000-yard receivers, I noted that the information only went back to 2006 for Oregon, and I was wondering if some of you could be internet sleuths, and alas, here we are. And Mark and Aaron discovered that Oregon did, in one season in 1998, have 2,000-yard receivers. Their names were Tony Hartley and Damon Griffin. So, Mark and Aaron, shout out to both of you for uh, for finding that information and shooting it my way, and doing so kindly, by the way. I very much appreciate it. So, back to the question here from Robin. A season ago, Bucky Irving had over a thousand yards rushing, it was like a thousand and eight, and Noah Whittington had eight hundred and two yards. So, the possibility of having two thousand yard rushers is not out of the realm of possibility, but it's hard to see with the balance they had a season ago how you could have a more productive year. And I think there are a couple of reasons for for that uh, for both of those guys. Number one, you have a new offensive line with a lot of new pieces. There's talent, right? I love what Connerly brings. Jackson Powers Johnson is the man. Steven Jones is experienced. You got Junior Anglau. You now have Nishad Strother maybe from East Carolina. You have Marcus Harper. You have uh, a Johnny Cornelius. You have George Silva in there. And we're not totally sure how that depth chart is, is going to shake out exactly at every single position. But regardless, you're going to have a lot of change in Oregon's offensive line graded better in pass blocking than run blocking a season ago, but they were still a very successful running team. Now, part of that is that the running backs are quite good. Bucky Irving is ridiculously hard to tackle, very elusive, very shifty. Whittington makes superb cuts, has a low center of gravity, and is a tough guy to bring down in his own right. Now, the reason I don't think that this will happen either, I don't think you're going to have 2,000-yard receivers, I don't think you're going to have 2,000-yard rushers, is not because the offense is going to take such a step back that they won't be able to produce at that level. But rather, I think you just have the depth and experience and production at a variety of positions to where 
you're not going to be force feeding these guys. And I think that's a good place for Oregon to be, whether you're talking about receivers or running backs. So Bucky Irving's your number one. Noah Whittington is your 1B, right? They're 1A, 1B with your running backs. And I talked about recently on the show answering one of your uh, one of your guys' fantastic questions, which, by the way, the mailbag is just absolutely stacked. It's going to be a fun, fun week, as always, answering your questions. Keep them coming. So the number three running back position, my instinct is to say that Jordan James would have it on lock because he looked really good last year, right? Not just in short yardage situations where he was highly effective, where he was called upon in big moments when the game was still like, it, it was not a, uh, it was not just a gimmick thing either where, you know, they're trying to get him touches so he doesn't transfer or, you know, they feel a sense of loyalty because he flipped from Georgia to him or anything like that. They were using Jordan James strategically a season ago. And I think he was the best short yardage back that Oregon had. Because Irving is more about being shifty and crafty and doing a little bit of dancing and whatnot. He's not as powerful of a downhill runner. Whittington, I think, has the best breakaway speed and also just has a bowling ball quality to him. But James is kind of in that C.J. Verdell mold. He's one cut, get downhill, run through a guy, and pop some pads. So I thought he was very good at that. But if Dante Dowdell looks as good to the coaching staff as he looked to us in the spring game, you could have a battle for that spot. But I think, you know, whether or not it ends up being James or Dowdell, you're going to see a third running back regularly get carries, right? And Oregon, uh, you used five running backs a season ago. Now, Byron Cardwell fell off, fell off as the year went on. He ended up, you know, redshirting when his playing time diminished. But still, all season long, you saw four running backs. That's clearly part of what Dan Lanning wants to do offensively. And I think it's a great approach. I mean, go back to, you know, the the, the Chip Kelly days offensively or the uh, Helfrich and Mariota days when those offenses were so good. You had Royce Freeman, Thomas Tyner, Byron Marshall was in the mix. You had uh, LaMichael James, Kenyon Barner, DeAnthony Thomas, Andre Crenshaw, Remine Alston. I mean, you always had a supplement of guys. And I don't think that, especially at a position like running back where guys can get hurt pretty regularly. It's a, it's a common occurrence at the running back position. That's one reason you want to have depth, but it's also a reason that you don't necessarily. And I think we saw this a year ago, want to have a guy who you're giving 25 to 30 carries to every game. I liked this split because certain guys, I mean, playing the hot hand is just not the worst thing in the world. Or having you know specialty roles for guys like Jordan James or Dowdell in a short yardage package, I think that I would love to see Dowdell and James on the field together. By the way, I I, I could definitely foresee like uh, last year they would put two running backs on the in the backfield with Bo Nix, and Bucky Irving was almost never one of them. It was usually Sean Dollars and Noah Whittington, and you know one would lead block for the other depending on which way the run action was going. I think that could be a great great sub package offensively for Jordan James and Dante Dowdell. But this is a roundabout way of saying that I don't think you're going to have enough touches plus the offensive line. I still expect to be good, but I don't think can be as good as it was a season ago. If that takes a step back and you just have that much talent and depth, I think having 2000 yard rushers is more likely than 2000 yard receivers because they got close a year ago. And if the balance is similar than, you know, hey, maybe it's just a, you know, a, a hot hand situation where Whittington gets a few more carries or, 
uh, you know, bust a couple more long runs that we know he's capable of. That could certainly happen. But overall, I, I just think you've got too many, too many cooks in the kitchen, but they're all Michelin star chefs. So I think we're in a, a really, really good place there. So we've got one more question to answer. We do. And well, actually, we don't have one. We have two questions to answer. The first one is why haven't you checked out FanDuel yet? If you have, why haven't you gone back? Because the NBA playoffs are here and you can make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now, new customers get a no sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. They've got great promotions every day at FanDuel, a safe, secure, super easy to use app with a great interface. You get paid instantly, and there's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sports book. Sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on. Get a no sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Final question for today's show. This one comes in from Alec. Good morning, Spencer. Just listened to today's podcast. Fantastic as always. Appreciate you. Wanted to shoot a question your way for the show. If you could attend any Oregon game this year, what game would you choose? There's so many great games this year, both home and away. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the best road games would be Utah or Washington. The best home games, USC or Oregon State. The Texas Tech game would be fun. So I thought for a while about this. And I, of course, as many of you may remember, I am based in southern Utah. So going up to Salt Lake City is not very hard. It's about a three and a half hour drive. And if I don't have something with work, but I believe I do, I will be going to that game. But I think I have to be here for a Southern Utah football broadcast, unfortunately. But Rice Eccles is a fantastic environment, right? They have one of the best home field advantages in all the Pac-12. They haven't lost with fans in the stands there since like 2019 or 18. Like it is a tough place to go to. As we remember, circa November 2021 wasn't pretty. So Utah would definitely be up there. The Washington game, I mean, it's on my list for sure because I could actually go and my parents live just north of Seattle and my mom is a Husky fan and my dad is a duck. Going to the game would be really, really fun. That one is definitely up there. But for me, I'd go with USC and I'd go with USC over Oregon State. Um for one reason, and I'd go with the USC game overall for two reasons. Number one, the USC game is at Autzen Stadium. And regrettably, though I've been to many Oregon football games since 2017, I haven't been to Autzen since 2017, which stinks, but that's just kind of the way life has gone, the way it's played out. I've watched the Ducks many times on the road or at neutral site games, a couple Pac-12 title games. One went well, one definitely did not. And, you know, I went to games in the Bay Area. I've been to, I feel like I'm missing one. Uh, I'm definitely missing one. But anyway, so I, I've been to more than a handful, but I'd love to get back to Austin. It's really, really tough given my job, and I understand that, and I, I accept that. It's just it's just kind of how it is, but I would pick that USC game because it's the last USC game for we don't know how long. Now, could we play USC at Austin in a non-conference one day? Yes. Our non-conference schedule is also set for so long, and Oregon State 
you know, there, there's some appeal to going to that game for sure, because you always want to beat the Beavs. That's, you know, a necessity now more than ever after you lost to them the year before. Can't lose to Oregon State two years in a row. That would be really, really bad, especially with this one coming at home where you haven't lost to them at Austin since 2007. But there will be other chances that I can foresee in which Oregon State would be at Austin Stadium. There are not currently other opportunities that I can foresee for USC at Austin Stadium. So I'd go with the Trojans. And the other thing, too, the ramifications could be massive, right? I mean, it is scheduled to be a big, big game in the Pac-12. Definitely a possibility of game day going there if Oregon and USC both, which I expect them to take care of business the way they should prior to that matchup. I mean, it is looking like one of the games of the year in the Pac-12. So I think you'll have more than just a regional uh, audience and a set of eyeballs on it. You'll have a big time national spotlight there. And I think with it being USC's last tour in the Pac-12 and it's at Autzen and it's going to be a big game. That's the one that I would most, most love to go to. But as for which Oregon games I'll make it out to this year, I don't know. If they make the Pac-12 championship game, I will almost certainly be there. And if that and if that happens, I would love to see you all there. So let's make it happen. Appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.